morning. So if uh, my name is John, just got a few quick announcements, really will be quick. And if you you're hearing an echo, it's not the uh, fact of the sparseness and the empty seats. It's because the announcements from last week are exactly the same ones as this week. The good news is I'm going to spare you the bad jokes from last week. I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. I love God. They're all bad jokes. That's all I have. So youth group will meet tonight at 5.30 until 7 here at the church downstairs in the uh, fireside room with uh, games and fellowship. Uh, family prayer night will be starting up uh, on Tuesday, July 28th at 5.30 here in the church. Uh, movie night, Overcomer, it's uh, the Christian movie, Sunday, August 2nd, and hot dogs and chips before the movie at 5 o'clock, and then the movie starts at 5.30. Um, and I'm told that we will be following CDC guidelines for serving food. I wish I could be there to see what that is. Uh, baptism, we will be scheduling a baptism soon. So if um, please let us know if any of you are interested in being baptized. That's all. Let's stand and continue worship.
Your glory, God, is what I 
up this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Your God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, meeting us here this morning. Thank you for filling this place with your presence, God. We love you, Jesus, and we just ask that as we continue on with our service this morning and Alan brings your word, God, I just pray that you just open our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say to us. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you again this morning. Um, if you notice that it's a little warm in here this morning, and that's bothersome to you, if you go out in the entryway, the air conditioning works out there. And you can still participate from that distance if you're so inclined. So if I see you get up and go out there, I'll, I'll understand that you're starting to experience the, the heat. <coughs> Uh, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, and the section that we've been looking at for a few weeks now is events that took place in the final week of Jesus' life. Um, he's encountering much uh, opposition and pressure from the religious leaders. Uh, part of what precipitated that was what we know as the triumphal entry when he entered into Jerusalem and everyone was celebrating his entrance and worshiping him and the religious leaders, although it's not recorded in the Gospel of Mark in other places, were upset with Jesus and said, Master, tell your disciples to stop this. And Jesus said, well, if they stop, worshiping me, then the stones will cry out and worship me. And then, of course, Jesus proceeded to the temple, and we know that he cleansed the temple, chased out the money changers and all of the business that was being transacted there, reminding the people that his house is a house of prayer. And on it went from there. And so, successively, different groups of the religious leaders came to Jesus to try to catch him saying something that would be against the law or that would at least offend the people and turn the people's uh, opinion of him around. The first time they came to him, they said, 
By what authority are you doing these things, and where did you get it? Well, we know where he got his authority from, and they should have known, but shame on them, even if they recognized it, they wouldn't acknowledge it. But we see in Mark chapter 12, where we're looking today, uh, verse 13, there was a group of the Pharisees with some of the Herodians who came to trap Jesus in his talk. And he deals with them pretty succinctly. So then we see, uh, which Pastor Shane dealt with last week, a group of the Sadducees who came along. And it's interesting in the text, it says, they say there's no resurrection. Well, people can say anything. And you can even take Scripture and make it say most anything. But Jesus made it very clear to them, you can say that, but obviously you don't know the Scriptures. And then he questions them and says, haven't you read in the book of Moses, you should know that what you're saying is wrong. So in the midst of this, a scribe shows up, and the scribes are also referred to in the New Testament as lawyers or teachers of the law. The scribes job was to record scripture and to make copies to disseminate to the various synagogues and other places where the scriptures were put into use for worship. Back in those days, they didn't have typewriters or printing presses or copy machines, and so they did it all by hand. But the other part of their job was to study the law and to determine its application in any given situation. And many of the scribes were participants in what is known as the Sanhedrin, which was the group of religious leaders who also oversaw civil activity and civil law. At the time of Jesus, the scribes had counted up the laws, the commandments of the Old Testament law, and determined that there were 613 commandments. 365 of those were negative commandments. In other words, thou shalt not, whatever. 248 of those commandments were positive. You shall do this, you should be this way, do this. And so, out of these commandments they would sit and debate and try to determine which of the commandments were weighty or most important and which were, were lighter and not so critical. And so within this context, this scribe hears Jesus interacting with the Sadducees, recognized that Jesus has answered wisely using the Scriptures, and being a man who knows the scriptures, posts this question to Jesus. And let's read this text, and then we'll take a look and see what transpires here. 
between Jesus and this scribe. Beginning in chapter 12 of Mark in verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the question was, which one is the most important of all? And literally in the Greek, it says, which one is first? And it wasn't first in terms of chronology, which one was first commanded. If you look back in the scriptures, we know the first commandment is in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let there be light, and then so on from there. And the first commandment to mankind was, be fruitful and multiply and take over the earth. So this wasn't the first commandment ever given, but it was the highest commandment in priority. And Jesus' answer, we don't see any hesitation on his part. He didn't have to stop and think about it and debate. Hmm, let's see, out of 613 commandments, which one is the most important? He knew right away. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now we notice there's a slight difference in the wording that Jesus gives and the wording of the Old Testament, but the sense is not changed. Jesus gives a fourfold view of all, where the Old Testament simply gave a threefold view of all. Interesting question I like to pose to people when we encounter this word in Scripture is, how much is all? And when we're given all four times, that's a lot. There's a significance to that all. And this 
first part of the answer makes it clear. If you look at the Ten Commandments, it covers the first, what's referred to biblically as the first table of the law, the first four commandments, which has to do with our relationship to God. And if we were to love God in this way, we would maintain that relationship with God fully. And it's clear from this collection of alls that it's comprehensive, this love. Uh, many commentators wrestle with what's the significance of these various words, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, Jesus said of our hearts, where our hearts or where our treasures are, that's where our hearts will be. And in the Old Testament, it's prophesied with the new covenant, we will receive a new heart, we'll receive a heart of flesh in replacement of a heart of stone. When you think of those concepts, stone compared to flesh, living flesh, active flesh, vastly different. The heart, in essence, is the center of our affections. Soul, well, the Old Testament tells us very clearly, the soul that sins shall die. The soul is the eternal part of us, the center of our being, and it exists forever, either in the presence of God or not in the presence of God. Mind, we are commanded in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. New focus, new thought processes. The mind is the center of our thinking. And of course, the way we think is played out in how we behave. And if our thoughts are askew, it's going to show up in our lives in one way, shape, or form. And all of our strength, pretty uh, clear there. That's what we have, our energy, uh, what gives us endurance. It's the source of action. It's what we use to do what we do. And if we love God with all of our strength, everything we do is directed towards our love for him. Second part of Jesus' answer, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Lord of you is the Lord of your neighbor. And We've examined it once before here when we were looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. The word used in the New Testament for neighbor is one of three words. One word for neighbor is someone who is of your same country, your same nationality, a fellow American. 
for us. The other word for neighbor would be the person who lives somewhere near you in your neighborhood. But the word that's used specifically by Jesus is the word that literally means near one. The one that is nearest to you at any given moment in time. And so there, there isn't a distinction to be made of, well, I don't know that person, so I don't need to love them because they're not my neighbor. They're not a fellow American. Maybe they're from a different ethnic background. Maybe they speak a different language. Or they don't live in my neighborhood, and so I don't know them and I don't interact with them. But someone who is near you at any given moment, we don't want to consider as our neighbor unless we really want something from them, typically. But this second commandment, or the second part of this answer that Jesus gives, covers the second table of the law, which would be out of the Ten Commandments, Commandment 5 through 10, which would be our interaction at a horizontal level with people around us, people in our families, people at our work, people that we run into wherever we are. Uh, in these days of social distancing, we could maybe try to escape from this idea of the near one because I can't get too near to anybody. So nobody's my neighbor now. I don't have to be kind or loving to anybody. Scripture doesn't give us that excuse. Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that even in Jesus' day, there was debate about what that meant. If I don't really love myself, then that means I don't really have to love anybody else. But we all love ourselves, and unfortunately, human nature is such that we love ourselves more than anything else. We do for ourselves more than we would do for anyone else. We give ourselves much more credit for our actions than they are due, and we also excuse ourselves much more than we should be allowed to. And we would never do that for someone else. We always assume that the other person is intentionally malicious. They're intentionally doing or saying whatever it is to offend me. Loving our neighbors as ourselves is a very difficult thing to do. And Jesus makes it clear there is no other commandment greater than these. Matthew's account of this has Jesus stating, on these two commandments depend all the law, and all the prophets. So in essence, the summary of the whole Old Testament is put into this package of loving God 
comprehensively and loving our neighbors, the person nearest to us, as much as we love ourselves. So how did the scribe respond? Matthew's account has the scribe conspiring with the other religious leaders to trap Jesus. Now Mark doesn't record that part of it, but we suspect that because of the context, that was part of the ploy, was to try to trip Jesus up and get him to say something that was outside of the law or against the law that, again, would shed bad light on him and break down people's opinion of him. But the scribe recognized that Jesus answered correctly because how can you debate with loving God comprehensively? And how can you debate with loving your neighbor as yourself as being a significant way of having a society, a community, a home in which people respect and love and care for one another. So the scribe responds and he says, in our language, well said, or good answer. Literally in the Greek, it's just one word. It's either good or well, depending on how you translate it. But the point is, good job. I agree. They found something they agreed on. And then he goes on to reiterate what Jesus said in verse 32. He says, you are right. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And that's the significance we saw in Leviticus at the end of the love your neighbor as yourself was, I am the Lord. There isn't another Lord. And there isn't another God. Psalm 136, I encourage you to read the whole psalm, but the first three verses give us a real sense of what the psalmist is seeking to communicate. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the psalm goes on to convey all of the marvelous things that God had done in particular toward Israel, but the blessing was for the whole world. But the point being, at the beginning of that psalm, reiterating that anyone that conceives of a God God is God over all of them. And anyone who aspires to be a Lord, he is Lord over all of them. So the scribe, recognizing there is no other beside him, verse 33 of Mark chapter 12, to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all of the other actions of the religious system. That's a pretty comprehensive statement to say these things are more important than all of this other stuff. 
it's interesting in James chapter 2, James chapter 2, verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So you could do all of the necessary sacrifices. You could do all of the necessary rituals. You could remain clean and yet not love your neighbor as yourself by showing some sort of partiality or casting judgment upon them and be accountable as a lawbreaker. And it's interesting that James uses the term royal law because in this context that we are looking at, Jesus, verse 34, saw that the scribe answered wisely and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The royal law and the kingdom those go hand in hand. The royal law is the law that's imposed by the king. And what's interesting is the king doesn't impose laws that he doesn't keep. Jesus loved his neighbors. Jesus loved his enemies and Jesus died in their place to demonstrate. And he said, greater love has no one than this, and that someone lay down their life for their friend. And he goes even further than that. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call those for whom he died his brothers and sisters. So then, the significance of this, again, Jesus tells the fellow, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But what's keeping him from the kingdom of God? Well, we'll take a look at that. But the question that came to my mind in looking at this is, why are we commanded to love? Shouldn't we just want to love? Shouldn't we just be loving? I mean, we know the benefits of love. We know the blessings of being loved. But we also know that we love ourselves more than anything else. More than God. And the scary part is, from the words of Jesus, there is no other commandment greater than these. Then it goes without saying, if we think about it, there's no other sin greater than this than to violate this commandment. To not love God comprehensively and to not love our neighbor as ourselves. 
those are sins that will keep people from a relationship with God. As well as a relationship with their neighbors. If they don't love your neighbor, you're obviously not going to get along with them, and so you're not going to interact with them well. But eternally speaking, if we don't love God with our whole being, then why would we want to be with him? If we don't have a relationship with him now, why do we assume we're going to have a relationship with him when we pass or if he should return first? First John chapter 4, in fact, the whole of John's epistle of 1 John has to do substantially with love. John writes, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What John is saying is love is a result of a relationship with God that continues to grow and continues to be exhibited. As we know, the first of the list of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the other ones that follow, joy, peace, patience, all those other things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives us the qualities of love. A challenge for you and me to do on a regular basis is visit 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and in the place of the word love, put your name. I'm just going to say I am because it's not true of me and it's not true of any of us on a regular basis, but it's what we should aspire to. I am patient. I am kind. I am those things. And those are truths about God in his relationship with us. But do we exhibit those things in our relationship to him and to others? That's the question, and that's the challenge. If this is the greatest commandment, that we love God comprehensively, and along with that, we love others, that should be something that shows. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, and that context, I would encourage you to look at that, but it says essentially uh, 
loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. And that's what we aspire to as believers, to be obedient. That's what Jesus commanded in the Great Commission. Teach one another to obey all that I've commanded you, all that I have told you. And that's the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where this greatest commandment came from, is teach it to your children. Write it on your house. Maybe some of you have a bumper sticker on your car. It isn't those things that are the significant part of it. It's the why is it so important that we love God? Well, because if we don't, there's calls to question, does he love us? Are we going to be prepared to meet him? The Old Testament bears out the behavior of the people of Israel that rules without relationship lead to rebellion. And the people rebelled over and over and over again because they ultimately did not have a relationship with God. They simply sought to follow the rules for the sake of the rules and for the sake of how it made them look. And we find the same thing with the religious leaders' encounter with Jesus. How many of us do that? St. Augustine famously said, Love God and do as you please. Now, we tend to focus on the, oh, do as I please. Yeah, I, I like doing that. But the point is, loving God the way Jesus says that we must do that comprehensively would cause us to do what pleases him, and that would please us. And that's what we aspire to. Obviously, we don't achieve that. But that doesn't mean we give up. Back in 1 John chapter 3, John calls attention again to love. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What John is saying here, this see what kind of love, what he's literally saying is from what country. In other words, he can, you could search the world over in every country, in every obscure place, and you would never find the kind of love that God conveys to his people. And he calls us children now, in spite of the fact that we don't love him comprehensively, and we don't love the others 
who he has created in his image as we love ourselves. But he says, it's not over. What we're going to be is not yet. We will be like him. We will love him comprehensively. We will love our neighbors as ourselves. That's going to happen in glory. That will be fulfilled ultimately. But again, our aspiration on a daily basis, if this is the greatest commandment, if this is the greatest thing that we could do with our time and our energy, how are we going to do it? How can we love God more tomorrow than we do today? What kind of a plan do we need to put in place? How can I love my neighbor more tomorrow than I do today? What am I going to do? Just wait until it happens? Wait until they love me first? Well, Jesus said that's how the Gentiles behave. That's how the pagans live. They treat each other, you know, tit for tat. But he said, no, you need to love your enemies. You need to pray for those who persecute you. You need to be people that exemplify godliness. Because this is the kind of love that God has displayed toward us if we are his people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he continues to live for us and intercede for us. John's reminder is that everyone who has that hope to be like God ultimately in glory purifies himself now as the Lord God Almighty is pure. We love now. We seek to love him now as he loves us. Let us pray. Our great and awesome God, we praise you and thank you for your love. We praise you and thank you that you have demonstrated love and continue to do so. We praise you and thank you that you have called us to be people of love, loving you first and foremost, but also loving those that you have created in your image and called to be in our neighborhood, to be in our presence, to be near us so that we can love them. We pray for your grace to be willing to aspire to that and work towards that. We also pray for your mercy for when we fail, that we would recognize there isn't an excuse but there is repentance and there is forgiveness and there is restoration and a renewed sense of I can do this by the grace of God. I can do this by the Spirit who has been instilled in me to bear out that fruit of love as well as all of the other aspects of interaction. We thank you and praise you for speaking forth to us today. Thank you for the opportunities that you give us to love you and to love others. We 
look forward to how you will use us as your people to bring forth the truth of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Father God, thanks for this morning. Thanks that we can just gather together and worship you. We love you, Jesus, and we just ask that you be with us this week. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here, you guys. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.